G'day, Phil Gould here. You are listening to Set Restart, the podcast which tackles all things rugby league, from grassroots levels right through to the professionals. No topic gets the red card on Set Restart. Hello and welcome to another episode of Set Restart. I'm Craig O'Donnell. And I'm Joe Marley. And on this week's episode, I'm delighted to tell you that we're joined by the Catalans head coach, Steve McNamara. Steve, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Yourselves? Not so bad, thanks, Steve. It's it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. No, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, massive wrap, Steve. Thank you for, for coming on. Um, so, yeah, you're back in the UK, um, which would normally be pre-season time. Um, like you said uh, before the call, it uh, feels a bit weird at the it- moment. It does. It feels like a body clock. It feels like we're jet lagged. You know, we should be in pre-season training now. We should be in probably week five. You know, of six of week uh, of pre-season. Looking forward to a Christmas break. Yet we've not got even started yet. And it's strange because uh, you know, as the season was coming to the end towards September, October, naturally players start to switch off and get ready for for a break, get ready for a holiday, and then back into pre-season. None of that could happen. So. Um, yeah, you know, we're, we're all back now. We're going to enjoy Christmas at home, but then pre-season will look different. We won't start until January and uh, there won't be no, no break before we start into the season. So getting that right is going to be uh, is going to be key for most of the teams. I bet you're quite happy that it, it is a March start, so it just does give you that bit of extra time just to get over the season and get your preparations in place. Yeah, it does. I mean... It, March 11th is the start. We got originally told it would it wouldn't be before March the 25th, um, so it's a little bit earlier than we sort of anticipated. So we've had to to change some things around. I'm just hoping, uh, and certainly we are in Catalans. I, I feel like there needs to be a real definite stop to one season and the start to the next season. I don't know whether you're the same. I watch the football. I'm watching rugby union. I don't know whether it's this season, last season, next season. It feels like everything's rolled into one. There's still no crowds there. Where I just I know from how we felt as a club across there in France that I feel like it needs to stop. And then once we start, we get started properly again, you know. Because you know I don't want to get back into pre-season training. We get positive COVID tests. We all have to stand down for for two weeks again. Mm. It just throws everybody out. So uh, you know we start pre-season. Uh, individually, January the 4th, um, the first week is, is done away because we're going to try and make sure the, the, the week after after Christmas when everyone's going to gather that there's any COVID around that we keep that away from the camp and then collectively on the 11th of January uh, we come back in together. So yeah, it's going to be different but uh, I think we all look forward to, like I said, a fresh start next season. Yeah, just and, and uh, oh, sorry Craig, go on. I was, I was just going to say just on that Steve um, and, and obviously um, talking specifically about the the sort of the France the French area. What what's your rea- initial reaction to the news today that Lee have been promoted, if you like, into the Super League next season? And and, and how do you think they'll be feeling about that decision in the Toulouse area? Yeah, me personally, uh, I'd like to have seen. Uh, no disrespect. This is no disrespect to Lee as a club or as a town, but a big city. You know, big city involved, whether that be a Toulouse, whether that be York, whether that be Bradford, you know, London, whatever it may be. 
I just think we've done the same thing over and over again for over 100 years and we're getting the same results. And I, I, uh, and that should, doesn't mean that Lee don't have the right to be there. They, they absolutely do. And if it's been the best uh, presentation and the best uh, case put forward, then, then they've won it on merit. But what I will say is, you know, for clubs like Toulouse and York and, and Bradford and Featherston and everybody else, you know, it might not be the worst decision. Because, you know, if you go up this year, you've got only a short time to get ready. You've got partial funding next year. Whereas now, if you're to lose, you're looking at your major competitors have now been taken out the race for promotion. They've taken Lee out the way. So basically, if, you, if you're to lose, now you're looking at it going, right, we've got a great chance of actually earning promotion, getting a 12 months to get ready and go into the competition with a full allocation of money the year after possibly swapping places with Lee who might come back down. So I'm sure everyone's disappointed. But when you look at it now, those teams that are strong in the championship, there's one less team to get past to get there the following year. That's, that's a great point, Steve. To be honest, I haven't even thought of that. Um, I was just, I was good to myself being a, being a supporter. I was thinking, yeah, great, great opportunity to, to, to travel a new, new part of the world, go to Toulouse. Um, I thought the bid was quite strong. I thought that the South of France derby would have been something which Super League and and, and Sky could have could have really um, sold and, and really promoted. So yeah, actually, we might just be a, a year later on, and hopefully, yeah, yeah exactly. we'll we'll uh, and hopefully by then, uh, coronavirus is is under control and we, we know yeah. what we're doing, and we can start travelling to the to yeah the country. because yeah. you know the travel must have come into consideration because it's been a nightmare for us this year. You know the private flights. That is one of our concerns next year. If, if it stays around and we have to continue on private flights, I'm not sure what will happen. So maybe two teams having to do that might have been just one too many for this year. Well, Could I you think... elaborate a little bit, Steve, on what your chairman's done this year, really, to, to keep Catalans going and, and keep probably the, the dignity of Super League? You know, he's really, really pulled out all the stops for you, hasn't he? Yeah, he's been incredible. Everyone thinks of the south of France, and I think everyone thinks of the Nice area and the Ritz, and they think about the flash and the glamour Monaco. It's not like that. We're not a rich part of the world. It's a working class. Rugby league's a working class sport, as we know. We're all from all. We, we understand what it's like. Yeah. And the south of France, where we're from, Perpignan, is, is truly working class. It's not a rich area. Our owner goes to work. He goes four o'clock every morning. He starts work in his abattoir. He goes he, every single day, works through till 11.30, he has three hours off over lunch, goes as a siesta, returns again, half past two, three o'clock, finishes work at eight o'clock at night. He's relentless. He does that five, six days a week. Um, and he works hard to get what he gets. And uh, he's not he's not a super rich chairman, so he's had to find different ways. And, and we're really, really uh, lucky that and fortunate that we've had a, a guy like that to help support the club. Um it's a little bit like uh, when your kids want a present for Christmas, though. I, I feel this season where you can't really afford it, but you don't want them to miss out. You don't want them to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. You find a way of getting them that present, and you worry about paying for it maybe in the oh, new God. year, in February, yeah. that's when the credit back card came. And I think we're in a little bit of that situation now. So we're waiting on government news. Again, the government support isn't as strong in France for the sports as it is in England. So we haven't really got that fairlow support at the minute. And so we're not sure of the grant, the government grant. So we're in a, we're not in trouble, but we're, we've got to be careful as we stand right now. But I'm sure we'll find a way through it. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to come in and say, actually, you've kind of like been 
the New Zealand Warriors of the Super League, aren't you, with what they've done over there in the NRL, spending so much time in Australia and being away from the families. Not not quite to the same scale, but you know, with without that commitment from Catalan Dragons and the and, and the chairman and, and the playing squad, we don't know where Super League would have been this year. And, and I think probably not enough has been made of that um say commitment from the club and I think yeah. it needs to be needs to be yeah. applauded by everyone. Yeah, um, it gets lost. It does get lost, Craig. I will jump on that because yeah, the commitment the New Zealand Warriors showed was sacrificing being with the families but at no additional financial cost to the club whatsoever. Now, they were spending $250,000 no, to $350,000 a week to locate New Zealand in Australia, paid all by the NRL. Melbourne Storm the same. You know, mm. It's incredible. You know, I see them maybe looking at buying a stake in Super League now, and they've got that much money across there. So it's a different scenario, but yeah, very, very, very tough all around for everybody. And and that's I mean that's moving off from where we're going, but just on that point on on the NRL looking to buy a stake in Super League, I, I've not really read into much detail behind it because I'm I'm one of these, I'll see it when I believe I'll believe it when I see it. Sorry, um, what's your what's your thoughts around that? Do you think that that would be a positive overall? I I do I don't know the detail. I'm the same as you, Craig. I haven't sort of looked into that too much. Well, just sitting back and looking at it, it makes sense. It makes sense. We've got two two competitions, two major competitions in the world, one in the Northern Hemisphere, one in the Southern Hemisphere. If you connect those two together, surely we make ourselves a little bit stronger. We can then possibly, you know, as one entity, then sort of organise the international schedule better rather than you know, these three organisations trying to run it. So I think for, for ourselves and the amount of money that's come into the NRL, uh, we have to be realistic and understand where we sit in the pecking order in English sport, in European sport. So to strengthen ourselves, how we do how do we do that? We may do it in a couple of ways, expansion through the Torontos, your Toulouse, your Catalans, or whatever it may be, but investment from uh, the other side of the world as well. So uh, I think some of that they should seriously look at and hopefully uh, unite the game. Yeah, I mean, because I've seen... Probably within the space of the last two years, um, I don't use it now, but when I was using Facebook, I was seeing rugby league pop, popping up in, in Mexico, uh, Lebanon, Spain. Um, uh, where, where else have I seen it? Um, Netherlands, I think. They've got rugby league. So internationally, the game seems to be growing before it's grown domestically in this country, which... You could argue is is well, it's the second nation that plays rugby. Well, Papua New Guinea maybe, but you know, so it's always been on the cusp of something. But then we seem to just take a backward step with the likes of, in my view, anyway, the decision not to uh, continue with the Toronto um, sort of side of the game. I, I think hopefully that don't come back to bite us on on the backside as a game. But I just felt that that was the wrong decision at the time. I think Catalans supported them, didn't they, Steve? Yeah, yeah, we supported them. We, think ourselves, St. Helens and Leeds were, put, I think, the three clubs that that backed them. Again, you know, it's good actually when you when you can comment and you can talk on things when you don't know the full detail. That's what fans do. That's what supporters do. Yeah. But in reality, I reckon when you get every single bit of detail, there was clearly some reasons as to why the other mm. clubs rejected. Toronto as a bid, and but we're not privy to all of those details, and our club will be. But I, as the coach, are. But I just sat back and looked at it and gone, well, look, you know, I've been involved in the game for a long period of time, and 
I've got to say, I think from 1996, 97, when I was involved at Bradford Bulls, at the, the conception of Super League, of the inception of Super League, that I don't feel the game's really grown. I look back at Odson in 97, 98, the Bulls and, mm. and everything there and the derbies and you know the, the big crowds and everything. And, and as the game really moved forward at all from that period of time and as it over 100 years. So we've been doing the same things and I get that people are... I've got that tradition about them, but you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna do something about the game and create a lot more interest and, and more commercial viability into the sport, yeah. Toronto's your Toulouse is these types of teams, how it works with all the travel and everything else. So, you know, that, that's how I said we don't know all of that sort of detail. We don't know the financial detail, but I thought it was exciting. I thought it was an exciting prospect as a coach and keeps me interested in rugby league, in Super League, in Europe. Yeah. My view, Steve, was it, it looked from the outside looking in, it it was like these clubs, these traditional clubs were, were looking after themselves a little bit. There was more looking after themselves rather than looking at the game as a whole. And I know, you know, chairman and, and chief executives, that's their job, isn't it, is to look after the club that they're running. But yeah. maybe it's time that the, the sport needs to come together a little bit and think what's the greater good for the sport. So obviously Toronto didn't get their share of the, the Sky money, the broadcast money. Uh, but they did all, all all that they could to try and promote the game and increase the the, view, the viewing figures. You know, signing yeah. Sonny Bill Williams. You know, they, they certainly got the crowds at the at the stadiums. And I just like I'm like Craig. It's, I just think it's yeah, much it's, it's interesting, Joe. You say it's about time the game come together to make these decisions. I think it needs the actual opposite because if the t- the game comes together, we'll keep getting the same decisions, protecting their own interests. What actually needs to happen is, in my opinion, people need to come in from the outside of our sport, mm. look at it, object, the door down. and actually go, right, let's go straight through the front door. Yeah, this is what needs to get done for the support. This is the direction we're going, and you either come with us or you fall by the wayside. And that person or that group, whatever it may be, you know, they would be detested. They would be hated by a lot of people in some of the small places that play rugby league. And they might not be around the game for so long, but that once that change, that catalyst has been made to move in that direction, we probably don't need them around for too much longer. You've made the decision. Everyone's going in that direction, and then we can hopefully flourish. But, yeah, it's interesting. Like you said, the, the clubs, the way the decisions are made, particularly in Super League now, where everyone gets a vote, and it's, you yeah. know, wow. Mm. You know, it's, uh, yeah, the chief exec, Robert Elson, it's very difficult. He, you know, he's employed by the clubs. He's paid by the clubs. You know, so yeah. they're paying his wages. If they don't like the decisions he makes, then they can get rid of him. So, yeah. Mm. It, it seems like you're vouching for uh, Eddie Hearn and the Hearns there, Steve. <laughs> Am I being a bit well, cheeky? Well, hey, him or somebody of that, somebody, it doesn't really matter whether it's a, a figure who's already involved in sport or has that knowledge or business or whatever it may be, but somebody who's got, you know, some, some different out the normal ideas. And I can actually look at it objectively and say, this is what is wrong with the game and this is what needs to get done to get it to the next stage. And if that's Eddie Ayn or someone of his ilk, then you know, they've got a proven track record. That is a fact. Definitely. I think I think that, I mean, I, I think we probably uh, could do a full episode on what, what's wrong and what's right with the game. And, and, and we'd love probably love to have you back on in a future episode, yeah. Steve, to look at that. But for now, I think we just want to take a walk down memory lane if we yeah. can. Um and and I, I know you yeah I mean I'm thinking back to when I was a young kid and and I don't know if this happened 
with yourselves. Obviously, I know you, you know your dad said and and Joe and, and Joe's mum played rugby league and my dad played rugby league and my dad used to say to me on a weekend, right, we're gonna go watch this person now. We're gonna go watch the next up and coming rising star. Um, because I love rugby league and and I've I've played it you know played it all my life, but. I know you've not got an ego, so I know this ain't going to feed it. But my, I remember my dad distinctively saying to me, come on, we're going to go watch Steve, this lad called Steve McNamara now. And it was a game, uh, I can't remember who it was against. I, I think it was a rep game, but it was being played at, on Brands Home School, so the, the, the Winifred Altby pitch. Yeah, yeah. And there was thousands there. And, and you were playing 13. And I just remember seeing, I mean, I'm not a tall kid. But I remember looking at the, the lads on the pitch thinking, crikey, these these are big blokes. You know, I think you were about 16. It was before he was at all. Yeah. Um, but I just want to sort of go back to, to I suppose, the end of your, your amateur career and, 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 and playing at Scaler and all the reps that you did and, and moving into that setup at Hull FC as a 17-year-old. What was that like for you as a, as a Hull born and bred yeah. kid? Yeah. Well, awesome challenge. A great challenge because as you're describing there, as you're coming through, you know, certainly for me coming through the, those amateurs days and those younger uh, age groups, if you like, everything, you know, you're, you're the senior in the group. You're, you know, if, if you're one of the better players, you're, you, you're senior, you're in charge and, and then everything else. And then what happens is you go into, as a 17-year-old, you go into all FC. And there's people like Steve Crooks there in the dressing room, Andy Danner, Carl Harrison, Paul Wellham, Paul Eastwood. You know, there's these blokes there. And, and you actually go right back to the bottom of the pecking order again. You go right to the bottom. And it's great. And, it, and it's great. And even if I see those people now, you know, those names I've just mentioned, you, you take your place in the seniority. I'm at the bottom. You know, they're older than me. You've got that respect for those older people. And that, for me, was a really important aspect for me going into the environment at all. I said, Brian Smith, for one, an incredible coach. I was fortunate to have him as a first coach at professional level. But that, um, you know, like a lot of the best players suffer disappointment, they suffer adversity, they suffer difficulties at certain stages of the careers. And for me, as a 16, 17-year-old, everything had gone my way. You know, I played for England schoolboys for two years running and was captains of teams and all of that. And then you have to start from the bottom. And it's a great level. It's a great learning experience at that. And, yeah, I was privileged to be part of a team that was um, what was starting to improve under Brian Smith and had some great people there. Because you went on to win the, the 91 Premiership, as it was, uh, with Hull FC, Steve. Yeah. Um, but I'm right in thinking that, unfortunately, you didn't make the semi-final and the, the final squad. How disappointing was that at the time? Joe, you know, it was the be- biggest and best lesson in my life. And that, that's the stuff I'm talking about there is, is that, yeah, my career had gone great. And then I played first team when I was 17. I scored a try in my debut. Played against the uh, tourist, uh, New Zealand tourist, the Wigan team at home. We, we beat a star-studded Wigan team. Phil Winley had a, an incredible game in that game. Everything's going well for me. And I probably took my eye off the ball a, a little bit. I must have done because we got to the semi-final uh, and I played, I think I think played the previous 18 games. We got to the semi-final. Noel Cleal dropped me. He was the coach out of town for the semi-final. Dean Busby took, took my spot. He was a year younger than me. Dean was only 18, I think, at the time. But he took my spot and they kept it. They won the semi-final, played the final. 
And uh, I was, yeah, that was the first real disappointment, rejection, the horrible sinking feeling in the stomach I'd ever had. And I needed it. I needed it at that stage to give me a kickstart. I actually went to Australia on the back of that farm. I went and played at St. George for three months as a 19-year-old. I remember Brian, Brian, yeah, Brian Smith had left and gone to St. George. And he said, look, in his words, you're walking a tightrope here, Steve. You know, you've had a lot go for you. You're walking the tightrope. You're either going to get to the other side and have a great career or you're going to fall off. And it's going to happen around about now. And he invited me to go out to Australia and play under-20s in reserve grade in Australia. Got away from the disappointment of missing out the final. And, and it was the combination of the two there, I think, really helped me move forward for the rest of my career. Without that disappointment, I'm not sure what would have happened for the rest of my career. What do you mean, taking the eye off the ball, Steve? Is it in terms of... Um, attitude in training or was it off the field maybe where you wasn't particularly no. after yourself yeah certainly yeah. not off the field no certainly not off the field uh, but I don't know you just get a bit comfortable sometimes you get a bit comfortable and I think I got a little bit comfortable it, nothing in particular Joe, nothing there what you stand back and go but you just realise that you know uh, yeah things had gone your way and I'd always worked really hard I'd always worked really hard as a junior player uh, I was I was generally bigger than most of them at the, you know, at the age group, so you sort of get away with it. But I always worked really hard, and quite possibly maybe just didn't. I've still thought I was working hard, but maybe I want as hard as I could do. And uh, like I said, that, that it was a big moment for me. Either bounce back from that, respond to it, or as Brian Smith said, fall off the tightrope and never be seen again, which happens a lot. How did Crusher break the news to you, Steve? Can't remember exactly, but it crushed me when he told me. It certainly crushed me when he told me because I wasn't expecting it. You know, I think you, you since then I've been in teams, of, you know, I'm not playing well here. I'm a chance of getting dropped here. But I didn't see that one coming. It was the first time I didn't see it coming. And he told me, and I, and I wasn't too happy, but I had to take it on the chain and they won the semi final. So the same message was going to come again on the final. You weren't going to change that team. And he told me again, and, and I remember, I remember um, after the game, you know, we won the Premiership. It was a great experience for the club, you know, a fantastic achievement. We come back, and I can't remember the name of the pub, but we stopped at a pub on the way back, all the players, and I remember going to the toilet, and no clear. I had sports him all week, practically. Mm. He comes and stands next to me, and I just, I had to look at him and say, look, respect, you got the decision right. The team won again. You know, I didn't like it, but you got it right. And then we sort of move on from there. So, but yeah, now Crusher was a good guy. He was just doing the, He was doing what coaches should do, which is make right decisions, not just the easy decisions. Have you seen him and spoke to him about it since? In all the, you know, all those years that have passed. <laughs> yeah, went out pig chasing with him. I went Australia. <laughs> Myself and Richard Gay went out there, and uh, yeah, we that was an experience on its own. You know, chasing pigs with Crusher and, <laughs> and what have you. So, but nah, nah, he's a good guy. And then I've seen him plenty of times. Obviously, when I was at the Roosters and coaching the NRL, he was with the with the, the Bulldogs initially, and then then back to Manly again. Excellent. So back back to your playing career. I mean, obviously, you went on and had a, a, a an exceptional career at LFC. LFC at the time, probably I don't know. Is it fair to say they were going through a transition period um, during that time? But yeah, I think you played more than 100, 150 games. I think for LFC captain of the club. I mean, for someone born and bred in Hull. Lifelong Hull FC fan, that must have been, well, cat that got the cream, surely. Yeah, it was. I was 21. 
uh, and I remember Royce Simmons. I got a lot of time for Royce Simmons as well. Royce was um, Brian Smith was the best coach I've ever worked with. Technically, he would he, he the knowledge of the game was incredible. Like, and that's why so many players who have been coached by Brian go on to be coaches because you get an A to Z knowledge of the game. Like he he coaches everything. Royce brought something different. Royce started to. Uh, bring an edge about the team, you know, the toughness, you know, all of that side as well. I really enjoyed playing for Royce, but I remember him asking me to be captain. I was 21. And we'd signed Des Asler at the time as well. Des was a 33-year-old Australian international. and um, He ran that, a few marathons to sign him, Steve, didn't he? On, Royce, on, he, he ran. He, he's funny because Kev Sinfield's just in the seven in seven days. Royce yeah. did five in five days. He wasn't in the same shape as what Kev is. tell you that. But he found a way. Of doing it. I remember all his toenails fell off. Like he was in, he was in bits, and he was on. He'd be out like in the middle of nowhere. No one would be watching, and the, the support man would say, "Jump in, Royce! Come on, we'll just take you a few miles." And he refused. Like he was that sort of character. So, uh, yeah. But to captain your 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 club, uh, hometown club, you know, a huge honour, great honour at a young age. Um, but then obviously, you know, it, it comes to a time when I left there where I didn't feel the club were. Uh, were ambitious enough, Craig. You know, I didn't think they were ambitious enough mm. at the time, and you know, I needed to, to to find a different route for the rest of my career. Was that the main driving force of you, of you leaving and going to Bradford? Yeah. If I felt Hull were a club that wanted to achieve things, wanted to uh, compete, genuinely compete, you know, genuinely go and win trophies, I don't think I would have I would have left. You know that 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 would have been the case, but. We weren't set up for that uh, in so many ways. You know, um, you know, Royce left, and you know, there was a period there where Phil Winley and Russ Walker was there. And there was a period then Tony, I think Tony Gore, and I can't remember which way around it all was, but the club was just sort of going around in circles a little bit for me. And at the time, Brian Smith came back to Bradford. Um, I had the opportunity to go there, or Wigan. I chose Bradford, and then uh, yeah. Um, I left all that was 1996, 97, and I've not been back yet since. <laughs> not to work. <laughs> no regrets. Obviously, you said you had the choice between Bradford and Wigan, and you know you had a very good career at Bradford. Got got to a grand final against Saints. Yeah. You wouldn't have changed. Wouldn't have changed no. that decision looking back. No. no. That that period at Bradford between 1996 uh, and 2000 was an incredible. You know, to be part of that start of Super League, be part of Bradford Bulls. Bulmania, everything that Oslo was, it was vibrant. It was it was an incredible place to be, um, and I wanted to be there competing, you know, for honours. And, and we did that. You know, we had Challenge Cup finals. We were to a grand final. Uh, you know, they continued that success long after I'd left as a player. You know, and really dominated for a period of time there, didn't they? But no, 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 no regrets. You got to make decisions in life. And whole kids, you know what those old kids are like. We get nosebleed if we. Go out to Leeds, don't we? You <laughs> if you tell the lads they're staying overnight for a night, you know, they're getting nosebleed. But um, no, you've got to, it would have been easy to start up, earn decent money, you know, be okay, be comfortable. But I needed to stretch myself, I needed to push myself. And, and that was a real key to it was was getting out of all, starting to travel, starting to move, explore different parts of the, the world. And, you know, thankfully on the back of that, you know, I've managed to be able to, you know, coach England. You know, be out to Australia, New Zealand, now in the south of France, and it opens a new, whole new world. Out. Make yourself uncomfortable. Don't sit there and be comfortable. Mm. And uh, go find something there. You know, even if it's 
you know, a little practice every day in life. Go do something every day. Make yourself uncomfortable because it does drive you forward. I think that's why we're doing this, Craig, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> to make ourselves yeah so outside of our little comfort zone, I guess. Yeah, yeah it's good. It's good. That that's exactly what that's exactly what it is. You don't know whether it's going to work, whether it's not going to work, whether it's going to be successful or not. But you don't know unless you try. And it's comfortable just to keep doing the same things over and over and over again. And uh, they've got a huge amount of respect for people who, who decide to, to go outside of that. So yeah, then you moved on to onto Wakefield. It was quite a you had one season at Wakefield. Uh, 19, 19 games, um, and then went on to went on to Huddersfield. Do you feel like that was a bit of a, a transition period moving into coaching? Was coaching always something that you wanted to do? Wanted to yeah. do, Steve? Yeah, coaching. I, I started coaching. Brian Smith got me into coaching. So when I was growing up, my dad was a coach of coaches. So my dad used to do the the courses where they would educate coaches to be coaches so I used to get tagged I'd tag along with him on a Saturday and a Sunday whatever it was so my dad was a big influence in terms of coaching but then your first professional coach I think is the most important thing and if you're lucky enough like I was to have Brian Smith like I said earlier on like wow like I was the experiences I was getting from him was great now I was still obviously close to all my friends at Scala so I'd actually go back and coach a bit with Scala on a night time and so enjoyed that aspect of it and passing on some knowledge. So I was always interested uh, in the coaching in the coaching side of things. Um, but going back to the Wakefield bit again, one of the biggest lessons ever I learned was in that period. So I had four years at Bradford, which were the best four years of playing, you know, with a group of people that was challenging for honours. And then I had to leave. You know, I wanted to stay, but you know, that my time was to leave, you know, and they made the decision that was going to happen. And I remember going to Wakefield, I remember agreeing the deal with Wakefield, it was a four-year deal, financially it was, a, it was a great deal, but I remember driving in the car to sign it, and I had the most sick feeling in the stomach ever. And I should have turned the car around and gone back home and rang up and said, I'm not doing this. I, I knew, my gut feeling was telling me this wasn't right. And uh, I carried on, carried on driving, signed the contract, and through no real fault of myself or the clubs, you know, there were some financial issues there what what uh, really set us back, but it just wasn't the right club for me and the club wasn't, you know, I wasn't the right right player for the club and mm. the club wasn't the right club for me. And quite often you see that, you see players who play at a club and think, I've never signed them and you see them with another club and it fits. You know, I think, I'll tell you it was a good example that I think is Josh Drinkwater with us at Catalan Dragons. So yeah. our club, if it fits what we do, and that OKR, it probably didn't quite work out as, as well as OKR and, and Josh would have liked, but for us it works, you know. So that was, for me, was Wakefield. Um, it was funny because we did get promised absolutely everything. We were going to sign Jonah Lomo, Jason <laughs> Robinson. We had, the, hey, we had the season launch. It was the most plush season launch you've ever seen with the best seafood you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> but within three or four months, our checks were bouncing. We weren't getting paid. We were queuing up after games to collect. We played Castleford on a over Easter weekend, and we got told we hadn't been paid. And we got told to wait after the game. We all got three hundred pounds in a in a bag in coins from the gate from the gate to see oh. through the rest of them. So, but hey, big lesson for me. Big strong gut decision. Shouldn't have done it. Did it for the wrong reasons, and um, whatever. Do that again. 
but you moved to Huddersfield and, and you quite enjoyed yourself at Huddersfield as far as I'm aware, Steve. It was really, a good experience. Really, really enjoyed it. Tony Smith was the coach. And he'd just come across there. Um, I played with Tony actually at St George. You know, he was a bit older than me, but I was in the reserve grade and, and, he, and he'd played reserve grade, so I sort of knew who Tony was. Uh, and I've got to tell you, it was for, for, for way less money than what I was getting paid at Wakefield, but I enjoyed it. Ten times as much, you know. And again, it's another, another great lesson. You make ends meet. You find a way, whatever salary you're on, you to you know you, you cut your cloth accordingly. And yeah, uh, we did that. Um, sorry, I just want to go back to the Wakefield experience because traveling to Wakefield, I did one of the benefits or real positives for me that was meeting Steve Prescott properly. We used to travel with each other backwards and forwards, and a great man he was, and some great oh. experiences we shared. Equally as good, but on a completely different scale, was sharing a car with Stanley Jean. Going to going to Uddersfield and back. So you know, a couple of great characters, different characters. But Uddersfield, uh, I found my love back. For, I lost my love for the game. That period at Wakefield, for, uh, it was something that I'd done from you know a young age, what I loved doing. I actually lost my love for the game. And, and it came back at Huddersfield in different circumstances. And we were in Super League. We got relegated. We had a great year in the Championship. We stuck together. We came back and we sort of helped establish the club again. And, uh, yeah, continued to do a bit of coaching there alongside Tony Smith as well. Did you obviously learn a lot from Tony Smith at that, that brief time that you had together? Yeah. Did you learn a lot from, from him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's... Yeah. Again, it's from good stock, isn't it? You know, I was yeah. going to say, is he similar in 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 thinking about the game in relation in terms of how Brian did? Yeah, uh, similar uh, and different. You know, in, in equal amounts. Uh, very knowledgeable of the game, but had a slightly different approach uh, to what Brian did. Yeah, but like I said Brian's number one for me. You know, in terms of he's taught us a lot of the things that we know now. Um, so it's still relevant what Brian what Brian was coaching you back then. That's still relevant in in today's it'd, game. It'd be relevant forever. In yeah. The stuff that Brian taught, and the, way, the best way I can describe it, I sort of mentioned it earlier on. He teaches the A to Z of rugby league. If you wanted, if you want to get taught on any aspect of rugby league, Brian Smith is your man to tell you, and he covers everything. You know, so you you know everything about every position. You know what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing all the time. Um. The difference with, with with Tony a little bit was you pick out those from A to Z, which are the bits there that really make a difference? So which are the bits there that, that win games? Which are the bits there that can win competitions? And, and Craig Bellum is the master at this as well. So rather than coaching the whole circle with everything inside of it, focus on those bits and really drill down on those bits. So Tony, was, Tony, Tony could... Um, he could coach, you know, he could coach the A to the Z, but he also knew to win games. We had to sort of bring that in a little bit, rein that in a little bit, yeah. concentrate on some certain aspects of the game um, to make sure, not at others field, but certainly at his time at Leeds, that he would compete and win trophies. Because I'm right in thinking, Steve, you, you, you're going to get some players who want to know everything about every position, about every player, um, and want to know the fine details of of, ev- of of everything that you do, but then you are going to get some players who just tell me my, tell me exactly where you want me to stand, uh, what position I'm going to be, and what you want from me. So I suppose it's yeah, adapting yeah. to the yeah. players that you've got. 
Joe, you've you've nailed it. You've absolutely nailed it. And that's what makes that's what makes team sports so intriguing, right? So I'll give you a little story. So when I'm in England, so when you coach a club team, you work with them every single day. So you know them inside out. You get to know the characters. You get to know how they respond. You get to know a little bit like that. But when you're the England coach, you only get to see them three or four times a year, or you know, a bit more if you get you know a bit more lucky. In you. But you don't you don't know them inside out. You don't know them, so you don't know what type of person reacts to what. So we did a, a profiling example with with England, and basically the stand you, you get your profile done. You stand in four corners of the room and. Um, we get the blues, and I'm a blue. I'm a blue. I like a lot of detail. So Kevin Sinfield was sat in the blue corner. I remember Michael Shenton being sat there, Ryan Hall across there. And they are people who you, they do. You need to explain everything. They want explanation. They want information. Once they've got that information, they can process it and it can work. And opposite corner of that, in the red corner, you've got Jamie Peacock. You've got James Graham. These volatile sort of straight up and down characters and quite like you said tell me what you effing want and I'll effing go out there and do it you only need to tell him once <laughs> and what happens is you quite often you'll get a conflict of those two groups they'll conflict with each other because they see the world in a different way they actually see it they need the, the information differently so for again as a coach one of the keys to coaching is understanding which players need what because if I just said to Kevin Sinfield go out there and do that get on with it you won't be able to do it. Yeah. So you bring those players in, you do a bit more with them earlier or you a little bit more afterwards or you well, the players who just need the clear message, you just give them the clear message and it's it's not an individual sport, it's a team sport. So getting all of those combinations and there's more characteristics characteristics than just those two, but getting that together is one of the things I think Brian Smith was good at at Hull FC and at Bradford. We didn't win the top prizes, but he could put pieces of a jigsaw together. And make players and personalities fit and work together very, very well. How, how tough is it, Steve, being a rugby league coach? L- listening to all that, um, obviously the, the, the game, uh, unless you speak to a coach like we're doing now, you, you, I guess we don't understand all the intricacies behind coaching and, and all the, all the, you know, the behavioural therapy, all, all the, all the, all yeah. the, the profiling. But how tough is it being a rugby league coach? <clears throat> Yeah, it's difficult, you know, it's difficult, but, you know, it's what we do, it's that adrenaline, it's actually that, what keeps us alive, Craig, that win and that loss, that high of the win and the the low of the loss, it's sort of like that, I don't want to describe it as taking drugs, because I've never done that and I don't understand that, but I sort of look at it and go, this is, it is a bit of a drug in some regards, because the highs are high, you've experienced it, and the lows are are pretty low or can be. So I think the key to that is evening that out ourselves. So particularly in the south of France, I'll tell you, well, you know, you'll see it. They are a volatile bunch. The Catalans people, well, they're renowned, the Catalans, they fight anybody everywhere. The French Catalans have fought the Spanish, the Spanish, the French, they'll fight each other, whatever it may be. They're just, they're volatile. That's what they are. Um, so dealing with those types of situations no, again, you imagine as a coach, you walk in. I walk in to my first day at, at uh, Catalan Dragons. I can't speak to the players. So I can't speak to the players in their language or half of the players in their language. And in any relationship, it's about trust, isn't it? If you've got trust, you know, your partner or your wife or your mm. friend, whatever it may be, your work colleagues, if you've got trust, 
then you have a great relationship and then you can move forward. But how do you gain trust with people if you can't speak to them? And that was the, it's one of the situations that I landed in in France was with half the team I couldn't speak to them, but I needed to build that trust and that relationship with, which was a, a difficult process, but one what I actually started about and started to enjoy. So you, you couldn't just fall back on that, you know, you, you just recently, you know, you were the England coach and you've done your, your stint in Australia. I suppose reputations kind of go out the window in that first, that first training session. You kind of got to prove you earn your stripes as a coach straight away and get the attention of the, of the group, the playing group. Yeah. And you can do that in so many different ways. But, you know, what I recognised straight away was if I'm a foreign speaking coach and the only things that you understand from me are negative messages. So I'm, all I'm doing is telling you what you can't do. So if, forget I'm taking over a team what's the bottom of the league. So in the fighting off, you know, relegation. So I'm thinking, if I go in here and just tell them everything that's bad about them, everything they can't do, well, that's the only thing they can understand from me in any way because I'm, I'm not speaking French. What they're going to look at me like that? So what we did was, what we dis- I decided as a group was that I was just going to find whether it was five minutes or ten minutes of something what I really liked from the vision, from the footage of what we play, and tell them that is what I like. You know, this is, we're going to positively coach, we're going to tell you what we do want to see, not what we don't want to see. And we started doing that, and it was a it was a really interesting project because it gave them confidence, a little bit of confidence. And then the other way I tried to build a relationship with the players was was for them to teach me. I can't speak French, and I need you to help me to get me through. So as a coach, normally as a player, in Craig's not there. The coach is telling you all the time what everything is. He's teaching you, <clears throat> whereas I let the players teach me on the French language. You know, what is a table? How do you say the word for table? How do you say the word for chair? And, and that's it. They feel like they're giving something back. So it's about that connection with each other. It doesn't matter what we're talking about, but it's creating that connection. You can do that English speaking, you know, every day of the week, whichever way you want to do it. But with the foreign speaking team, that does add not just a foreign speaking team, but one with a completely different culture, what an Englishman is as well. <laughs> the key to have been successful is trying to pull all of that together. What, what's your French like now then, Steve? Uh, I'm pulling me off, a little better, uh, improving. <laughs> I do find it hard. I've, you know, I've, I've gone in stages there where I've really improved and then sort of regressed a little bit where you stop. You know, the job is all, the job of coaching the Super League team is all encompassing. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Might be a little bit of an excuse for me, uh, but, you know, I, Particularly these moments now in the off season, I spend a lot of time studying now. But in the middle of that season, when it's on and everything's happening all the time, you know, any spare minute you get, sometimes you just need to relax a little bit rather than trying to force yourself to learn something that's you know causing you a little bit more stress as well. But <clears throat> improving career, I can understand conversations. I can get by with conversations quite clearly now, and uh, hopefully when I go back in January, it'll be even better. Six more tackles is cool. So there it is. There's a set restart buzzer, which means six quick-fire questions for our guest, Steve McNamara. Are you ready, Steve? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, here we go. Number one. Who would you rather fight, Sam Cassiano or Mickey McAlorum? Sam Cassiano. I'll tell you why. He hit me once and knocked me out and leave me alone. Mickey Mack hit me, knocked me out, and then keep hitting me after <laughs> and knocked out as well. <laughs> number two. Have all FC ever approached you to be their coach? Yes. Number three, 
do you have any aspirations for coaching LFC in the future? Yes. Number four, Lescargo or a Patty Butty? Not a choice, Craig. Patty Butty after coming out of Bonnie Boat on a Saturday night, every day of the week. <laughs> Number five, what's your second sport aside from obviously not rugby league? Oh, second sport? Uh, golf. Well, you might have said that. And number six, in your opinion, who's the best player to have ever played rugby league? That's the Ellie Ramley, I think. I don't think there'd be many that would disagree, would there? Taking a few steps back then, to when you uh, became coach of England. Uh, thinking about how proud you was to captain Hull FC, I- I'm I'm guessing that to be asked and invited and, and take up the position as head coach of your country must have been up there, if not the proudest moment in, in your career. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but for me, it would be. Yeah. I think what it is, uh, Craig, in those situations... And I've only learned this, I think, recently, watching Ben make his debut. When Ben, my son Ben played for FC, made his debut, and I was in France watching it. The sense of pride you get from watching your children achieve something. You know, you, you're sort of a bit blasé when you're doing it. So not blasé, but it's your job and you're getting on with it in the middle of it. But it made me sit back and understand what my mum and dad must have thought, what my wife must have thought, what my children must have thought at that time of... Of their of their husband or their father or their son achieving something like that. So when you're in the middle of it yourself, you bet you don't sort of sit back and look at that and think about that. But it did make me realise, like I said, watching Ben play. Wow, that's how my parents, my wife, must have felt during that period. And it, and it is. It's a. Um, I love the job. I actually love, love the job. It was a tremendous challenge. Again, a different challenge to the day-to-day coaching. A di- completely different skill set. One that I was very fortunate, and I'll say this, I was very, very fortunate that I was the assistant coach before I was the head coach in that job. Because during that period as the assistant coach to Tony Smith, Tony Smith was the head coach, I saw the difficulties that he faced in that job. Not not the mistakes he made, I won't call it mistakes, it's not. It's just that I saw firsthand the difficulties that he had. And that so when I got the job, rather than learning it from scratch. I had a real clear idea of what was the biggest areas of improvement that we could make as a group. Because you're not going to change everything as a national coach. You don't spend the time with the players. But I could see the areas that need, clearly needed redefining and uh, making important for the playing group. I think we've, we've listened to another uh, podcast that you've done, Stephen. You've mentioned there that, I don't know, again, I don't want to put words into mouth. Was those difficulties, maybe the relationships of the players in the squad, and I think it's quite well known that, you know, the St. Ellen's players and Leeds players, was quite a, yeah. a big rivalry, wasn't there, between yeah. them? And it maybe carried into the, the England camp. That that was the number one. You know, you've got an international team, you've got international players, you've got high-quality players, high-quality athletes, and you've got to put them into a team. And, and they, they, they had to want to be a team. And they were, you know, at that stage, club rivalry was number one. Playing for Leeds and St. Helens, and, and the story I think you're probably relating to there was we were 
we were trying to get to the bottom of, of what the our issues were as a team and we had a session and, and it took ages but eventually well, that's it, the form of Steve is actually sat down in, in a room and like, yeah. an honest discussion yeah between yeah, you all yeah yeah yeah. yeah like a I won't say team building exercise it was we knew there was issues within our group but no one had, had, had actually had the balls to put their hand up and say this is what the problem is this is what the issue is you know, and it and it took a you know it took. You know, we, I remember the guy was facilitating the meeting, and we were going around the houses a little bit. And then I think it was Kevin Sinfield. You know, he just put his hand up and said, "Look, I'll be honest with you. I'm from Leeds. I play for Leeds. Leeds is my priority. I'm not bringing any of the, the secrets here. You know, I hold them back to ourselves. And really, you know, I've come here, and you know, that's it." That's all I'm going to say. And then James Graham stood and in his way said, well, I'm from effing Saints and I don't care about Leeds and all I'm worried about is Saints winning. Bang. And that was it. That was the catalyst. That's all it needed. It was a start. And from that point, we could then address the issues. You know, they, they had no identity at that stage. The, the England team had no identity. You know, you, what we tried to create was a, what we called a two-team mentality that you played for Leeds and England, we played for St. Helens and England, we played for Hull FC and England. They didn't feel that. They felt they played for Hull FC and that England was something that you might do twice a year. The coach might ring up and say, well, when you've been picked for a mid-season test match, come come and train for three days and we'll play a test match. And then at the end of the season, oh, well, when you've been selected to play against Australia in a tour or whatever it may be. And that was it. That was it. So there's no identity. There's no sense of belonging there's no ownership of that so we, tr- we went on to create this what we called the two-team mentality that you feel part of two teams which was Leeds or FC Saints Wigan or England as well and um, that was like I said earlier on when you talk about the biggest percentage gains you know can I get any better gains from coaching how to catch or pass or tackle and all that absolutely not club coaches do that but making that group come together as a team, creating better training facilities, environments for them, um, making it feel important for them, all of those things, um, put England back up on a pedestal. Because before that, quite clearly, what they were getting at the clubs, the top clubs, was actually better than what they were getting from England. And we had to reverse that the other way around. Yeah. Do you think that, um, do you think that, that, that opinion, that attitude stemmed just from within the groups of players at the clubs, or do you think it came from the club? Do you think the club somehow, so Leeds or St. Helens, somehow sort of subliminally got into the minds of Kevin Sinfield and James Graham to the point where they protected the club above country? Yeah. Every, I think it came from every angle, Craig. Like, I think you're absolutely right there. You've nailed it. I never really thought about it in those terms, but you're right. It also came from the, the supporters of the teams. So you remember when the exiles started, Sam Tompkins was playing for England and getting booed at Edinburgh yeah. playing against yeah. the exiles. You remember the, the, the crowd didn't actually know who to cheer for. We're English, but they actually really had an infinity with the exiles because there were players, some clubs had more players playing for the exiles than they did for England, so they supported the exiles because club rivalry, mm. we're tribal, aren't we, in England? We're tribal. You know, you see in yeah. football, you see in rugby, we're tribal. That's what we are. And that tribalism, is a real strength, but it was a real weakness for the England team at that stage. So I remember saying to the players about, hey, you know, the level of competition we play at that 
you know, we didn't have enough. We don't have state of origin. We don't have the level of NRL where every game, well, not every game, but a lot of the games are really high standard. I remember saying to the players, boys, when you play against each other, you've got to knock the shit out of each other, basically. You've got to go hard at each other because it's the only way you'll improve it. And I remember Ben Westwood hitting Sam Tompkins with England teammates, but they had a right set to win a game. But at the end of the game, the difference was, once we'd done some work with them, the respect they had for each other and the, 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 the hugging and the shaking of hands. And basically, they knew they went at each other to improve each other for the better good of their teams at the stage, but England as well. Before that, if you'd have had an incident like that, those players would not have embraced each other, would not have helped each other in an England camp. And like I said, it was just, uh, I was fortunate to see that before I went into the job. If I hadn't have seen that, I probably wouldn't have put as much emphasis on that type of, um, well, say coaching, or improvement, whatever you mm. I wouldn't have put the same amount of emphasis on. I wouldn't have maybe looked in a different direction and got it wrong. Yeah. Like going back to that incident, you know, where Westwood and, and, and Tompkins had, had clashed and they'd gone hard against each other. I suppose that's rugby league, Steve, isn't it? You know, you're meant to be going hard at each other, but then off the pitch, you know, you shake hands and... and and you yeah. get on with it. I think that they are the should be the principles of rugby league. You do, but as what Craig said earlier on, subliminally, you know, is that a word actually, Craig, or do you make that yeah, word? Yeah, no, no, that's a word, <laughs> Steve. I'm, surpri- I'm surprised I pronounced it correctly. Normally, I trip up on that one. I just struggle then, but subliminally, he's he's right. He's absolutely right that uh, that hatred for for clubs, you know, Wigan Saints or Saints and Leeds or you know whichever way around it is, Hull and OKR is a little bit different in some regards because we all live in the same city, but you get what I'm talking about there. That was override and everything else. That was the most important thing for these players, whereas what we tried to turn it around, and, and, and it was still, you know, from the outside, I wouldn't say all of the clubs and all the coaches and all the chief execs bought into it, all of it, all the way through, because they still want to protect their own interests. But the players within the group did. You know, they really enjoyed that path. And it was, and it, it was what was needed for that group at that stage. And, no, we just fell a little bit short that World Cup semi final in 2013. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, but it would have been it would have been great to see that team in that year have a crack at the Aussies in the final. Well, yeah, that's what was going to go on to Steve is that you you was really building towards that the, the home World Cup and obviously we've got a home World Cup coming next year. And um, how how good was that? You know, yeah. I, I was at the game at the, at the KC uh, the Fiji and the England game and it was a full house and it was and it was a really really good game. And um, obviously the Fijians and the, the Sims brothers are in the team and they really took it to England and our pack had to, to pull some mm. special players out, you know, the, you know, where they were passing it between themselves, finding gaps. And yeah, it was a special atmosphere. And I think you, yeah. you got that wherever you went um, in, 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 in across the competition. Yeah, the, the World Cup on home soil is, is special. I am envious of it this time round. I will say, not jealous, but I'm envious because I know how good it's going to be. You know, I, I know what it's like. I know the feeling... Well, we played Ireland at Huddersfield, which is particularly a, a blockbuster game, but it was fun. I remember you know, the coach getting stuck in the crowd going to, to the ground, that type of feeling, you know, police escorts going to games and because the crowds were so big. That game that you spoke about against Fiji, great first half, really tight, and then we managed to open up and, and all the way through the tournament, those types of scenarios. And um, But, you know, that was a, you know, that was again was a, was a real test. You know, there were some testing moments for me there as a coach because you know, whether you remember at the start of that time we played Australia and uh, for disciplinary reasons I left 
James Graham, um, Sakade, Michael McAloran, uh, out of the team. And it was the first game of the World Cup, and you're probably leaving your best front row and James Graham out out of that team. And uh, the 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 press was just, you know, they were constantly on it. They wanted to know every detail in and out. And again, another lesson for me as a coach was, you know, James Graham, you know, and those players, not just James, but those players, you know, uh, you know, did something they shouldn't have done. And again, as a coach, it's the first game of the World Cup. You want to play in Australia, you want your best players out there. It would have been easy just to turn a blind eye to that and ignore that and make the easy decision and just let those players play and give them a slap on the wrist. But I decided to make that decision because... All the work that we've done previously, the stuff we're talking about, about camaraderie and team, team building and trust with each other, you know, you've got 20, 20, 21 other players in that squad all looking at you as to what decision you're going to make when you hit those moments. And it was the right decision. Not necessarily for winning that game on that day. Would have had a better chance with James Graham in that team. But it was the right decision for that group moving forward. But the bit that the press wanted to, they wanted to know the ins and outs. They wanted to know exactly what and why, and I wouldn't tell him. Yeah, I, would, I remember. And I refused to tell him, and I would not yeah, tell yeah. him to, to this day. He's not, because at the same time as you, uh, those 20 and 21 other players there, you're trying to keep their trust and they've seen that you've made a, um, a decision. For those other three players, I want them to perform well for the rest of the tournament. I want them to understand that, yeah, you've messed up. You, you, you've messed up here. You've been disciplined, but I'll protect you at the same time. Because I want your trust for the rest of the tournament moving forward. You don't want to lose those players' trust. So, yeah, I'm not going to go run into the to the press and tell everybody. As much as the press feel you should, and some mm. of your press officers say, "Oh, you've got to tell them." For me, yeah. no. I wanted James Graham's trust for the rest of that tournament. So he needed to know that I could punish him, sit him on the sideline, but then I'd look after him, protect him, and take him forward with the rest of the group. And dealing with the media at that time, Steve, that'd have been something which probably the highest amount of media media attention you've yeah. ever had probably yeah. as a coach how hard was that to deal yeah, with that, yourself yeah that, yeah that was tough you know that 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 was you know i remember um you know the whole week really really um tough week but i knew deep down regardless of what anybody else said it didn't matter what anybody else said or whatever anybody thought i was making the right decisions for the team making the right decisions for the players uh, and for us moving forward, and um, again, really, really, I had to stay strong through that, not flinch on that. You know, if you flinch, you know, if you blink, you know, people see a gap there, and uh, I wasn't going to do that. So I knew it was the right thing. Uh, I had some good other support staff around me as well, uh, which helped at that stage. And the players, like I said, they knew what we were trying to do, what we were trying to build, and they knew it was the right decision. If they hadn't made the right decision, I would have lost the rest of the group and that was never going to happen. Yeah, I think we've got to talk about that, the semi-final at Wembley, Steve. You know, it was it felt like we was really building towards something. And obviously, we did build towards something. We only got beat in the last few seconds. You know, let's just comment on the performance. The performance, was that the, the best performance you got out out of an England team while she was coach? Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? It's a loss. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a couple of good performances. You know, we we uh, we nearly beat Mel- uh, Australia in Melbourne. I think it was the year. What was it? The year after? Or the, yeah, I think the year after when Ryan Hall with a fingertip and could have been yeah. a trap. Not all of that sort of stuff, but in actual terms of team performance, it was the best team performance. But again, it was a lesson in that is what high level sport 
is and should be. If you time the cream at the top of the top, the cream here, this is what sport should go. It should go right down to that. Look at this year's grand final. Yeah. That is like that is high level sport. And that semi final of the World Cup was. We played really well. New Zealand were clinging on. Uh, but they found a way. And they found a way with what, twenty seconds left on mm-hmm. the yeah. know, and scoring that try and, and Wembley felt like it stood still. It was like a silent pause for like felt like about five seconds. I remember walking down the stairs uh, and just the demoralising sort of feeling because I felt we were ready as a team to go take Australia on our feet. We played so well and the confidence we would have got from that, it would have been interesting to see us play Australia at Old Trafford the week after. But like I said, that's what that's what, what sport is. And remember, New, Sunday, New Zealand didn't turn up, did they, for the final? No, they didn't, Chris. And that's the, that's the thing, you know, that's the thing. Maybe that was their final beating us, whereas... You know when you're inside a team. You know when you're ready to go. You know when your races run a little bit at times as well. You know when we've put everything into that. I'm not sure whether we can go again next week, but that group were ready to go again next week. You know, they were they were ready for it. But you know, Sean Johnson comes up with a bit. Of, I think Sonny Bill Williams carried the ball early in the set, got an eye tackle, the kicked up, yeah. you know, and then you know, like I said, it was a bit like slow motion at that stage, but. You know, it would have been interesting to see what have happened, but I will say, like I've always said it, that is what top-level sport does, and that's that adrenaline again, that's that high, and that devastating low of that loss uh, that probably keeps you alive at stage. Well, it's, it's what fans crave, isn't it? I mean, I know, obviously, from an Englishman's point of view, we were on the wrong end of the result, but you crave that yeah. high-level intensity, edgy-seat performances, yeah. and, I th- and I think domestically... That's what we miss week in week out. You know, the, the grand final was a was a, a, a key piece of evidence in, in that. Just just going back, Steve, in, in relation to when you had to drop um, James Graham, Zach, and sorry, who was the third one? It name escapes yeah. me at the minute. McLaurin. Um, Have any of them ever come back to you and said that that was their light bulb moment in relation to their career that happened after that? Much in the same way that you had when, obviously, Crusher left you out of the Premiership sides. Yeah, it's funny because, um, yeah, uh, you know, I had conversations with all of them uh, at the time, but then, you know, afterwards as well. Again, I don't know, I won't sort of go into too much what gets personally said, but, you know, phone call a month after from you know, one of them and, you know, down the same sort of route. Hey, look, I, re- I had signed Michael McElroy and Matt Catlands. You know, resigned him there. He's been he's been awesome for us. He's been he's been great in so many ways for us. Um, but he had a few difficulties at that stage. And again, um, you know, you try and help those players through those difficulties and try and help them iron those out and not fall into problems. But everyone makes mistakes. And you, if you have ownership of the mistakes, and as a coach, you can move on. You can select them again. You can bring them back to your club, whatever it may be. If you don't own those mistakes. You don't own those mistakes. That's when it's really difficult to coach because you then lose trust with those players. So, but you know, but it's um, most of the league players are pretty honest with themselves. But you know, obviously, you get the one or two there that uh, you know probably not quite the same level as some of the other ones. But no, they they own the mistakes. They understood what it was. You know, a couple of them, you know, Zach continued to have a couple of problems, didn't he, afterwards? And he's got help now, and we've seen the benefits of, of that help and support he's been given. Yeah, definitely, definitely, Steve. And um, and then you did really well after after the after the World Cup. You know, you you picked the you picked the England team up and 
you beat the beat the New Zealanders two one in a, in a in a test series, um, and that happened to be your your last games as England coach. How obviously great great result again, and you felt like you again you were building towards. I think it was a four nations after that, and then then a, another World Cup. How disappointed was you to get the get the call that that the England team wanted to go in a in a different direction, and yeah. that Wayne Bennett got the got the job. Yeah, yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I was hugely disappointed with that. Hugely disappointed. I, you know, I will say, I'll admit that I was, you know, at the you know after the World Cup in thirteen, uh, I had a choice to make. I was out of contract, and uh, I actually agreed. In principle, to join Bath Rugby Union, I was going with Mike Ford um, to be uh, a coach, one of his uh, assistant coaches in Bath. I've been down and visited the training facility. <laughs> a nine million pound castle, <laughs> like, and I was getting a gatekeeper's lodging in the grounds of this castle to live in. We had no lake, and like, wow. But then the opportunity to, to coach in the that would have meant giving up the England job, and then but the opportunity come to be an assistant coach in the NRL with Sydney Roosters, which I could then do the England job part time and do that. And I thought, yeah, it's the next phase of what we want to do with England. So it was it, it was a decision. The whole family took the whole family. It was great. Went down there. And, um, the disappointing bit there was, yeah, I felt that the World Cup just gone, the one in Brisbane where England lost the final. Yeah, I remember the exact score. That was a close game, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I always knew that that group of players, what we had sort of picked up and built, was going to be in its prime in that World Cup. So 13 was on the home soil. Was it 17? I can't. Was it four years after? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 17. And I knew that that was the year. That was the year because not only was our players going to be in their prime, but also Greg English was retired. Darren Lockyer was retired. Billy Slater was out of the team, you know, and uh, and I, the, I think Cooper Cronk was not, not on his last legs, but you know he was, yeah, he yeah. was sort of fair. That it was like they weren't the formidable team. Oh, sorry, Cameron Smith. It was Cameron Smith was a, you know, I think that was near the end of his sort. Of, they weren't as formidable, and England was going to be at the prime. So that combination, I thought we, we were ready for that. Uh, but then just the mannerism, the manner in which you know, I found out the news was the most disappointing thing, completely. So I was in Australia, I think it was Saturday night, Saturday daytime here, and by that stage I sort of got a feeling maybe it wasn't going to work out, but then it started rolling around the bottom of the screen in television that Wayne Bennett was the new coach, and that was the first I'd officially heard of the job. So that was disappointing for me, and dealing with that uh, was difficult, but you know, people make decisions and they wanted to, uh, you know, just try and find that extra bit, I think, you know, and um, decided to go in a different room. I'm really interested to hear what, what, how they could pitch, you know, tell that to you, Steve, you know. Yeah. From the outside looking in, you know, the, the team was really progressing. And, and like you say, you got that opportunity in 2017, we could have a real good shot at it again. And yeah. looking back now, you look at Wayne Bennett's tenure and you think, well, that was a massive... Massive mistake. This is my, my opinion. You know, at, that, at the time when you was there, it wasn't just the playing squad that was developing. There was a real uh, sense of supporter, supporter growth. You know, not just within rugby league, but on on the peripheries of that. You know, the casual supporters was really getting behind the team. And then Wayne Bennett, obviously, we all know Wayne. He's not a fantastic with the media. He doesn't you know? Obviously, he's really good with his players, but on the outside, he's not good with that with that external noise. And 
That's why as uh, disappointed that I was with the job with losing the job. Sometimes you have big regrets. You think, God, I wish I'd have done that better, or I wish I'd have done it in a different way. Like I left that England job, like really comfortable in myself. Like really not happy that I'd lost a job, clearly, but I was really comfortable that I'd done it, you know, I'd done it the way we were doing it, and I'd done everything possible we could to improve everything that we possibly could. But one person, the chief exec, you know, saw an opportunity maybe to get we get the world's best coach or we get the world's best coach and thought yeah. and maybe that might just be the missing link that we've got and he made that decision you know which is they're entitled to make that decision but I left that job really comfortable that I've done a great job sometimes you leave and you go oh, yeah I'm disappointed but when I left work you know, I knew when I hadn't done myself justice as a player it wasn't right and so on and so on but I'm really comfortable knowing that what we did with England improved them outside come to a stage where we could compete and um yeah, we're comfortable with the whole program, and then not just the senior team. It was the connection we connected the England group from the under 18s on the 16s all the way up to the senior group. We aligned all of that together <clears throat> so that this thread would run through for hopefully for years to come. Just a quick comment on on Sean Wayne. Now, Steve, do you think he is the right man um, to 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 bring that togetherness back into the into the squad and and kick us on going forward? Yeah, time will tell. Time yeah. will tell. You know, I think he's um, obviously getting the job at the time. It's, it's going to clearly be frustrating for Sean in terms of not being able to get any work from with him or see him. And, and that's that. That's one of the keys of being the England coaches is that uh, understanding when to get them together, when and when when not, because you're sat twiddling your thumbs most of the time. You're not twiddling your thumbs. You're doing other bits. Don't get me wrong, but these players are playing the whole season, and then you want to get your hands on them, but. The players might be absolutely had enough of rugby league or they might be tired and you've got to understand that just because you, you want to get your hands on them might not be the best thing for them as well. But in terms of, you know, he's, he's got the opportunity now and hopefully the World Cup goes ahead at the end of the yep. year. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like I said, to be on that world stage uh, on home soil, it's, uh, it's a great, fantastic opportunity with a good team. It's clearly going to be a good, a good England team available for selection. Definitely, definitely. My my opinion is that what I feel that Sean could bring is that at least he, you know, you saw him uh, during uh, the, the games during like lockdown because he was at nearly every game watching pretty much every player in Super League where perhaps Wayne Bennett didn't quite uh, pay enough attention to our domestic competition. Uh, obviously, he got to saw the, see the boys down in Australia, but um, where Sean Wayne will be able to keep abreast of what's yeah. happening here as well as in Australia. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, after after England, like you say, you got the um, you you was working down in Australia. What type of, I suppose, how did that formulate you as a, a as a coach? You know, what did you change much from from your coaching style down in England when you was moving into the Australian uh, setup? What kind of things did you learn down there? Yeah, I loved it. You know, the the experience there. <clears throat> you know, to go to a club like the Roosters, Sydney Roosters. You know, location-wise, you know, anybody who knows Sydney knows you know, the Roosters is, is in the heartbeat. It's on the edge of the city. It's the eastern suburb. It's between Coogee and Bondi. It's an incredible place to take your family for one. You know, that, you know, and, and that club, the Roosters, gets its pick of players. You know, you know, Nick Plyce is its owner. You know, obviously, Trent now is the coach. The area that it's from, you know, they're always going to have good players. So we had good players to work with. Uh, and we had 
Uh, not the best facilities, you know, not not the best facilities by a long way, uh, but a great group of players and a great group of staff. Uh, and for me, because I was the England coach at the time and, and I'd done all the stuff in England and done the stuff there, like talking about Sean Wayne, attending games and knew all the players inside out, knew everything. For me, it was a great chance to see what the opposition were really doing. It was a great chance mm-hmm. to go, right, we think we know what the Aussies and New Zealanders think, you know, how they think about the game, but and you go across there for you know, three three years in Sydney and a year in New Zealand and actually live it and breathe it every single day and see what the differences really are. Uh, and for me, the emphasis on defence was, was huge. Well, was huge. You know, uh, what we really went there was the best defensive teams win the competition. You know, is that different? Di- sorry, Steve. Is that difference in structures or is it just mentality? Is it just basically inbred in, in Australians and New Zealanders that? They will not get through. They will not pass our line. Or is yeah. it a difference in, in structures? Yeah, there's, there's a number of things. I won't say too much structure, but the discipline of the structures is the main thing and the accountability of the, the of your role within that structure. And that if you can't fulfil that or you can't do that, there's probably somebody else to take the place who can do that, particularly mm-hmm. at the Roosters. And that was what they've got there. And uh, obviously, fantastically well coached. Uh, you know, well coached team, but well and well drilled team, but a really disciplined group of players who value that side of the game. You know, how many games do you watch where you go, um, you judge a team's performance and how well they've attacked? Go watch your left scene, okay, whatever it is. Yeah. You, go, you know, you go, wow, we've played really well today, we won 36 24. You know, everyone goes away happy because you see the attack, that's what you do. Yeah. But, you know, Teams, what are the best teams? Win the games 8 6, 10 8, 14 10. <clears throat> and you might go away from those games going, oh, we weren't great today. You know, we weren't great. But you actually was. 50% of the game is attack, 50% of the game is defence. But we don't value defence as a nation, as a group of people, as much as they do in Australia. And the grand final this year was a perfect example. If you'd have said, yeah. to, if you'd have said to Wigan before the game, you'll concede one try in the grand final. You want to take, you just snap the hand off. You're going to win the final. They conceded one try with with the clock on 80 minutes and still lost the grand final. And that's the fact in Australia. Those teams do it. Look at uh, the teams that have won the the competition over the last 15, 20 years. The top two defensive teams nearly every nearly every year. If you get a grand final over there. And you want to have a bet, and there's a team that's got the best defence against a team that's got the fifth best defence. Pick the team with the best defence. Mm-hmm. That's what happened, and that was what started to happen for me, and for me to place a different value on some of the things that I had previously valued in the past. Because in England, we love the attractive style, we believe. Yeah. The Aussies like us because we pass the ball, the short passing. The James Graham when he went across there, loved the you know the passing front rowers and loose forwards, <clears throat> but defence wins games. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you think? How do you think, Steve, that the NRL view the Super League as, as a collective, not not individual teams, but as as that collective um, product? I think they value it. I think the NRL value it. But it's really funny, like like because I've gone when, when I first arrived at the Roosters, my first game was against uh, Wigan, the World Club Challenge, and. Uh, and because obviously I knew Wigan number twenty six. Steve, you can you take the preview, some of the preview on this. So we started off, and the first question just to the Sydney Roosters players was, right, oh boys, which which Wigan players do we know? Before we start, who do we know from Wigan? What do you know about them? 
Oh. Nothing knew anybody. They just sat there like, do you know like we watch the uh, games on, mm. on television? They've got that many games on television across there at different levels. That, and the, you know, the real diehards will watch the English games. But there's that much else going on across there that you know the be all and end all of their sport is the NRL. Look at the AFL. You know, there's only that sport played in Australia, but it's a huge sport there. And the NRL is similar, but <clears throat> there is a, there is a mutual respect amongst the players without a doubt. But they just don't have as much knowledge on us as we do on them. I think that was evident, wasn't it, when uh, Tommy Makinson won Golden Boot and Brad Fittler came out and said, how can a player I've never heard of before be, yeah. be the best player but, in the world? Uh, there you go, yeah, there's a good example of it. Steve, obviously you learned all your experiences. Was it hard to come back to the to the Super League? Obviously, I suppose the experience in Catalan would be quite one very hard to turn down, you know, the, 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 the standard of living there. But was it Was it a hard decision to leave Australia to come back? Well, from the roots, I went to I went to New Zealand Warriors. Don't forget, for one season, I, I, I made a decision there. You know, me, uh, my wife and kids came back. They came back predominantly for the kids to go back to school and finish GCSEs and A levels. They were both at that age. Ben GCSEs, Grace at A levels, so it was important for them to do that. And I took off to New Zealand, and uh, was going to spend a couple of years there because I wanted to experience something different from outside of Australia as well, New Zealand. And the travel, it's a three-hour travel you know, every other week. It's a two-hour time difference. It's, you know, there's a, lots of um, difficulties when you're a New Zealand warrior on a normal yeah. season, never mind this season. Um, and I was really enjoying the time there, working with Stephen Kearney. Um, it was great. But then, and I say this in the, in the, in the nicest way, there's only a couple of jobs I've come back for in Super League. I mean, and the Catalan Dragons was one of them. Catalan Dragons at that stage was one of them. It was a job that had always intrigued me. I thought the experience I'd got from being in New Zealand Warriors sort of suited, you know, with the travel restrictions and anything else that goes with it. And I really wanted the, I really wanted an opportunity to go for that job. And it came up. And the timing wasn't great because I was enjoying what I was doing. It would have been good to stay there. But I thought if I, if I don't go through it on this occasion, then that opportunity might not come again. Um, and it's funny because you know, I, I'm generally very diligent. I said earlier on, I want lots of detail before I make a decision. But I knew everything wasn't quite good at Catalans. I knew if I asked too many questions, I wouldn't hear the answers I wanted to hear and I took the job. <laughs> and it sounds really, really strange. But I thought the less I know about this, the more chance I've got of actually taking the job and, and then going there and having a crack at it. And uh, Yeah, just... The reason why I like it is because it's so different. And I say this with the old amount of respect again. The M62, whether it's from Hallwall to St. Helens on the other side, is pretty similar, isn't it? Yeah. There's not much difference. But, you know, you know, there's after different teams, but everything's pretty similar along that way. Whereas the opportunities I've had with the England and Australia, New Zealand and the south of France, I thought that's, again, outside of my comfort zone. Wow, coaching the team, now we can't speak the language to a large percentage of the players how would you do that and it's that challenge that take yourself out of the comfort so might go well might not go go well but don't be scared by the fact that you've got to take this challenge on and what's your aspirations for for catalan steve because obviously been in the transfer market recently obviously mike mcmeek and sam from castleford what 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 are your what's your dream with with, yeah. with catalan club well the dream is to to be the uh 
the first I'll part the first team that wins its first ever grand final. And I was fortunate there that, you know, we've had some big moments there. Obviously, surviving relegation was a huge one. We were we were losing at half time in that million million pound game. We were four minutes yeah. from being relegated and we, we stayed up. Winning the Challenge Cup in, in 2018 was like the club's first ever trophy. You, you, have to, you have to be across there to understand what that was, to win your first ever trophy. And Catalans was, when I joined Catalans, Craig, it was only probably the only club where you could do that. Everyone else has probably won a Challenge Cup. Over the history, probably most yeah. teams have won a, a title, not a Super League title, don't get me wrong, but club had never won a trophy, so you had a chance to be the first to do something, and we achieved that. And that, I get, that I get, yeah, I guess in similar vein, in, in relation to what Lee Radford did with the FC, actually at Wembley. At Wembley, at Wembley, exactly, exactly. You can only be the first. You know, there's only one person to be the first. Yeah. And Radders did it, and I'll go down in Fort Law, and rightly so for doing that, and then backed it up again the following year. <clears throat> for us to do that as a club that's only 15 years old, to win our first trophy, is incredible. That opportunity opened up again in Barcelona. Yeah. Right? And again. Um, you know, the new camp is a spiritual home for Catalan's people, and, and again, it was a normal league game. But we were driving to to Barcelona, and it was like Wembley. You know, when you, the service stations were all full, yeah, yeah, yeah. good old days driving down to Wembley. It was like that, and it's a spiritual home. And it's something special. So the, the ability to to play and win in that stadium, um, you know, and that's you know, I remember that we, we weren't sure what dressing rooms we were allowed in. So right near the end, because we had to get permission off Lionel Messi, he had to get permission <laughs> whether we were allowed to use his dressing room or not. You know, that sort of... Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so we uh, we did that, but... Was any of the Barcelona players there, Steve? Did they, any of the, the footballers come and watch uh, the The season had finished. Uh, the season ah, right. finished and, and everything else, but it, it was... Uh, I was incredible. Like, you, you can't describe it, in, you know, in a few words. It was just special for the club but winning the cup gave us that chance to do that but the Holy Grail is the first ever grand final now now you know Challenge Cup yeah all have won it you know we've managed to win it you know outside that Warrington have, have won it but then it's Leeds Bradford Saints Wigan mm. you know probably else outside of that Salford got to the final this year but got beat but then you're talking a different level now with the, with the grand final there's only four teams ever done it one of those teams is now in the championship. And we're talking since 1996, 24 years. Mm-hmm. And there's only three teams like That's not great for the competition. It's no. great for those teams. But then the rest of us, the challenges, so who's going to be the first ones outside of that to do it? All I've seen trying to you know, do it. Warren are trying to do it. We're trying to do it. And if you can be the first to do it, you've got to, a lot of things have got to line up for you to do that. We were both ourselves and LFC, 80 minutes short this year but it's almost like stepping back to the 90s when Wigan just dominated yeah everything isn't it, it yeah and and when you when you talk about it in 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 that breath go back to what we we started to talk about at the beginning of this this podcast has the game really moved on hmm. you know and, and you know you could argue that it's not in some yeah. some respect you can you can and then you can also argue that those teams of that but but being that exceptional, that it's the rest of our faults as to why we ain't got there. Yeah. And we're looking at that, you know, like every team's doing that. Every team's looking at that. Every team's at a different stage, I suppose. I mean, take the whole team. All Kiara are looking to really rebuild and establish, aren't they? They're, they've gone a different route. They're probably not expecting to 
challenging win for it next year, but maybe three or four years, that's that's what they're in as well as Hull FC are at a stage now where they've put a squad together that you know oof, they could challenge for that. We're putting a squad together that looks like that. We've got to look underneath just the team and look at your club as a whole to understand why those teams have been as successful as they have for such a long period of time. And they've got some mechanisms in place, some structures and systems in place that maybe some of the rest of us haven't got that. And that's the challenge for us, not mm. to put the team together, but put your whole club together. See, we made the point, Craig, in, um, in one of our other podcasts that there was no, this is our opinion, that there was no other two teams in Super League who would have been able to produce that that quality for over the 80 minutes. I think Wigan did exactly what they did against Hull, but Hull broke after 40 minutes or 30 minutes and they couldn't couldn't sustain that level. And I think that's, that, is when we, that is the challenge for every other team, isn't it, in Super League, is to not just be able to peak for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, it's yeah. that 80-minute performance over and over again, week after week. Yeah. First and foremost, to put yourself in a position to get to a grand farm and then once you get there, the stakes are, are so high, and the level goes goes up to that. And that was that was high, high quality for two teams to defend like that. Again, the, the, the food of thought is Saints probably deserved to win. They had more ball, they had more possession, so they attacked better. But Wigan defended, would have presented the game. They probably deserved to win because they had to could defend the trial line for so long. <clears throat> but that's the bit, Joe. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're all trying to achieve. And you know, I've made some decisions this year in terms of releasing some of our senior players this yeah. year, older players, particularly our middle players, because I'm looking at all of that over the course of the season, the two seasons going, but what does a club need? What does a team need to be able to get there? And they might not never get there, but, you know, that standard, what those boys set, is what we all need to get to. Yeah. They need to drop down to us just so one of us can win it. Yeah, yeah. We have to go up to them. And that's the challenge. That's that. That's why it's so so good. The first team that does it outside of that, you know, like I I look at Warrington. I think the money they have spent over mm-hmm. so many years, so many years, they should have been able to take one of a grand final on. Yeah, you know, they are the standout ones outside of those. What I think have got the backing and support and have been for years. And then you start coming to the Hull FCs and ourselves that Hull FC traditionally should be able to do it. Should be able to do you it. Think. Uh, we're, we're a relatively new club we're trying to get there and we're fighting the Udersfields and the Castlefords and everybody else under that as well So, Steve yeah. I, I think we could talk for hours and hours and hours I, I've got one final question for you before I think Joe's got one and, and, and I think we'd love to have you back on in, in 6 months time, 12 months time just to talk about how the game has changed hopefully but my one final question for you is could 17, 18, 19-year-old Steve McNamara play in today's game and, and, and would you want to? Oh. I'll or, say, is the, or is the game that different? No, because I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Uh, the game is different, right? The game, the game is now, is if you look at, um, and I think this is in the NRL as well, the athleticism of the players is incredible. Like, like particularly in the NRL, right? the sheer athletes that they get on board to start with uh, is incredible. But the the place in the game for, for the smart player, the intelligent player, you know, you, you know, Cameron Smith, for example, in Australia, look at him, he's been their best player, but he's the, not the most athletic player or the dynamic player or breaks the tackles, 
that he's consistently been the best player over a long period of time. So I think people would adapt. And I'd like to think I had enough smartness about me to be able to play the game. Yeah, not not you know. Uh, yeah, I was fortunate. I played. I think it was five times for Great Britain. But I reckon I was lucky to get those because you know I managed to get those opportunities. But I didn't have the athleticism of uh, Andy Farrell, Paul Scholes, sort of similar sort of positions there. Which sort of helped me. But I think I could have played Super League to play at that highest level. Now you probably need a little bit more. Or certainly a little bit more, but um, yeah, it would have been a challenge. But yeah, I think people go back to Johnny White and all them, don't they? Yeah, they all would have. You know, they, he would have been a superstar now, if, as he was then. You know, I think that that is a fact. But uh, take the subject off me if you don't mind, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one final one, Steve, and I know you your coaching career hasn't finished. But what are you most proud of your playing career or your coaching career up to date? Oh, yeah. Because yeah, but, looking, we look through it, Steve. We've obviously gone through it, and it's an unbelievable career, isn't it? You've been, yeah. like you say, all over the world. Yeah. You've been at the top level for both player and coach. Yeah. Honestly, it's an unbelievable career what we've what we've gone through today. Yeah. So I, I'm sorry to put you on the spot and give you that. Difficult no, question. you're making me think. I'm because I'm having to think. I don't. I don't. I've never thought of it that way. Can you do it? See, I've not had a break, break as such where your playing career finished and you maybe get a few years to reflect on it and then you start off going out. It's, sort of con- it's a continuation of, of a career. So it's not like... Feel, I, I do feel like whilst I was playing, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's more enjoyable playing, not to tell you that, you know, it's, you know, without a doubt. But whilst I was playing, I felt like I was always playing, waiting to be a coach in some regards. So as much as I enjoy my playing career and love my playing career, I actually got the bug of coaching from being a kid with my dad and then Brian Smith as the first coach. So I feel like I was always going to go go down to that route. So I don't know whether that really directly answers the question whether I enjoyed playing a lot more, but the, I feel like I was, you know, I was probably not destined in the wrong way, but always aiming towards going into coaching at some point. And I do enjoy it. I do like it. But the responsibility is huge. It is huge when you're you know, head coach of a Super League club. Well, all we can say, Steve, is is thank you so much for your time. Um, I think this is probably our longest podcast so far, the, the most in-depth and the most um, sort of interesting from the point of view of, of a player-turned-coach. Um, hopefully, all of our listeners we've got on board so far we'll, we'll, we'll really enjoy this I know we've enjoyed um, taking part in it Joe have you got anything final to say? Just a massive thank you Steve honestly really appreciate your time yeah. um, obviously you know we're, we're, too, we're new at this and really thank you for, for supporting us uh, so, no, good, luck for, yeah. good luck for the season ahead thank you. I appreciate the comments it's a pleasure but again I will say I'll take my hat off to you in terms of you know getting yourselves out there and doing something doing something different, taking yourself out of your comfort zone, challenging yourselves and, and coming up with something. So yeah, I've, uh, you know, it's not something I could do. Yeah, I feel like you know you're doing something there that you know I'd love to be able to do but won't have the, the balls to go and do it. So well, if you can if you can sling us any Catalans players our way, we'll we we'll <laughs> gladly gladly take yeah, them. Listen, but... any anytime you need some help on that, you know we So there we have it. Our thanks to Steve McNamara for joining us on Set Restart. We hope you've all enjoyed listening and thanks for tuning in.